This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. It's the most wonderful time of the year, folks. That's right, it's time for the annual SEC Speaks Conference, Mm -hmm. which for securities wonks like me and Chris, it's kind of like Christmas come early. PLI's virtual SEC Speaks in 2021 program took place on October 12th and 13th, and there were a lot of talking points coming out of the conference. And we're going to take you through the four big things you should know about the SEC Speaks in 2021 today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It is very good to be with you, Chris. I'm not kidding, man. This is this is like a holiday for us, really. I mean, the best part was being able to be in the same vaccinated and masked <laughs> room last week to watch part of the, the SEC Speaks conference together. So that, that was my favorite part. Oh, no, I agree. It, it had been... Oh my gosh, we hadn't seen each other since March of 2020, I think, maybe February. Episode four, maybe, as we're on episode 49 (laughs) here. So uh, this podcast has been brought to you almost fully remote throughout the period. Yeah, exactly. Uh, But yeah, it was good to see you. It was good to see SEC Speaks again. Wish it could have been in person, Mm -hmm. but, you know, understand that they're they're taking some safety precautions still this year. Uh, What we want to do today on the show is actually walk through... What we, what we identified as the four big things you should know about from SEC Speaks. I mean, there really was a ton of coverage coming out of this Speaks. I think it was a great program, very substantive. Uh, and, and we're trying to just sort of cut through some of the noise to help our listeners take away what we think are the key points. All right, quick overview for any of you who are not aware of uh, what SEC Speaks is, <laughs> which by now I think you probably yeah. are. But SEC Speaks is a two-day conference every year uh, put on by the good folks at PLI, during which they bring together loads of senior SEC officials from every division and most of the offices throughout the SEC to talk about what their strategic priorities are going to be for the next year, to talk about some of the uh, the headline cases or regulations, rulemakings, guidance that came out over the last year, to sort of bring everyone up to speed on what's going on at the SEC. Uh, this was the second year in a row that PLI has done this as a virtual event. And I have to say, it went off without a hitch. It was a really smooth, very clean program this year. And again, they managed to bring in all of the heavy hitters. We heard from Chair Gary Gensler, Commissioner Alad Roisman, Commissioner Allison Heron Lee, Commissioner Crenshaw, the new Enforcement Director, Gabir Graywall, the new Corp Fin Director, Renee Jones. We heard from the head of the Office of the Investor Advocate, Rick Fleming. We heard from directors of or acting directors of every every division. Uh, it, w- it really was a good show, touching on all of the hot topics that we talk about right here on Insecurities. We did crypto, ESG, SPACs, 
counting, uh, enforcement and examination priorities. Sorry, for, sorry for the change in tone there. Chris. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> but all the things we like to talk about. Uh, if you missed it, a quick plug, you can actually watch every program on demand online at pli.edu. If you don't care about enforcement, you can just go to Corp Fin or the other way around. Whatever you want to do, it's there for you on demand. Highly recommend it. That said, we're going to give you what you need to know right here today on the show. Uh, Chris, any high level takeaways, any favorite panels you want to talk about? Well, I, I was trying to think of, of how to describe the, the faculty, and it's not a who's who of the SEC. It's just a who's. It's everybody. It's all the, the, big, the big guys and gals that we've got at the commission. So, I mean, again, Kurt, you hint at it. I, I'm a kind of a wonk for that accounting panel, right? If you can get all of the chief accountants <laughs> of all the divisions together to share their priorities. Uh, one of the changes that I enjoyed this year was their, albeit somewhat forced, a good kind of repartee between some of the speakers. I remember in years past, there was yes. a little bit more of speech one, speech two, speech three. It seems the new commission and maybe the new chair has instructed people to be a little bit more dynamic. So we enjoyed that. Uh, but yeah, Corp Finn and, and accounting are really my one-two punch uh, to, to see through the SEC speaks. Not that, you know, enforcement really isn't, uh, you know, exciting as well. But I know you had a couple favorites in there, too. Yeah, I, I thought it was a really good show. As I said, look, one of the things that I really liked about this conference was that, I, I mean, across the panels, they really got into the weeds on things. I mean, it was a very substantive SEC speaks. There have been some years in the past where you, you sort of know what the talking points are going to be uh, going yeah. <laughs> going into the conference. And this year wasn't like that at all, really. And I, I don't know if that's because, you know, we've got a new chair uh, and some, some new directors or why exactly. But I mean, we spent a ton of time during the enforcement panel hearing about the Wells process and, and how the, the director um, and his staff are thinking differently about how uh, you know, defense counsel should approach the Wells process or, or the the process of submitting a white paper to the Division of Enforcement. Just, I mean, just really good stuff, a lot to take away and to think about. Um, you know, I don't know that the nitty gritty of the Wells process made our big four, Chris, but it, it was still it was still interesting for me. I was surprised, you know, they, they talked about there being almost a two week kind of clock that they consider internally for that process. And I was I mean, they were close to coming down to like the actual wire. You know, you have until 1129 p.m. on the 13th and a half day for you to, to submit. So like you said, a lot of in the weeds there. There's been a lot of great coverage, too, across, you know, all of the regular outlets, the publications that follow the SEC. Uh, you can catch a lot of the speeches from the commissioners and, and the directors uh, posted to the SEC website. Uh, and many of it, like you said, Kurt, is is kind of a revisit of some of the things they've said throughout this year. So that speeches link uh, is great on the SEC's website. But we're going to we could sit here all day, Kurt, and talk about all of our favorite, uh, you know, little jokes <laughs> that we're told and, and some of the back and forth between some of the folks. But like you said, up top, we're going to focus on our our four big things coming out of the SEC Speaks, and and you'll start with our number one. Yeah, so the number one thing, and uh, it's not just because it's something that I happen to be really interested in, but it's also because I think it's the thing that probably got the most coverage coming out of SEC Speaks, and it was uh, something that came up during the enforcement director, Gabir Graywall's speech. It was his his first ever speech at an SEC speaks, um, and and actually I should I should say it wasn't really a speech. They were his opening remarks mm -hmm. for the SEC enforcement panel, um, but still interesting to get a little window into how he's thinking about his role, how he's thinking about the SEC enforcement program. 
it's only the second time that he has spoken publicly since taking on the role of enforcement director. And he gave a wide ranging, uh, thoughtful and again, substantive talk. Uh, he discussed corporate responsibility. He talked about the role of gatekeepers like attorneys and accountants. Mm-hmm. He talked about the importance of penalties to deter misconduct, uh, and he talked about some of the process issues that we've hinted at, like the Wells process and submitting white papers. But but it was this snippet, sort of two-thirds of the way into the speech, that seemed to capture everyone's attention and and just give rise to all kinds of speculation. So, so here it is, in his own words, uh, Director Graywall said, finally... In addition to punishing misconduct, our remedies must deter it from happening in the first place. If the public understands that our decisions are motivated by these principles, it also increases their trust that institutions are playing by the rules and being held accountable when they do not. When it comes to accountability, few things rival the magnitude of wrongdoers admitting that they broke the law. And so, in an era of diminished trust, we will, in appropriate circumstances, be requiring admissions in cases where heightened accountability and acceptance of responsibility are in the public interest. Admissions giving their attention-getting nature also serve as a clarion call to other market participants to stamp out and self-report the misconduct to the extent it is occurring in their firm." It was it was this little couple of sentences in here saying we will, in appropriate circumstances, be requiring admissions that just drove the defense bar and the the entire media (laughs) crazy. I mean, there there have been articles in the National Law Review, Barron's, Think Advisor, Reuters, Law 360, Bloomberg, CNN. Of course, tons of law firm client alerts. Um, I even saw a couple local news channels that picked it up, like the the local news channel in Austin, uh, where our friend Mandy Moody is, <laughs> yeah. ran a story about the SEC's admissions policy. <laughs> right? Uh, so it was it was actually a, a a big deal, and I think it was a big deal for a for a few reasons. One, I think a lot of people saw this as. Uh, as bringing back an old policy that has sort of drifted away. Um, so if we go, you know, sort of way back in time to when uh, Rob Kazami was the director of enforcement, he put in place a policy where uh, defendants who uh, who admitted to misconduct in a criminal case could not settle an SEC enforcement action unless they admitted to the same conduct, right? So you sort of, you couldn't get away with something in front of the SEC that you admitted to somewhere else. Kind of, kind of made sense, right? Well, in the changeover that came after Kazami when, uh, when Mary Jo White became the chair of the SEC uh, and Andrew Ceresny and George Canellos took over as co-directors of the Division of Enforcement, they took the policy a little bit farther and basically said, we're going to require admissions in cases where we think it is important, either because it is going to deter misconduct or because they are cases that are programmatically significant to the SEC because, because of the nature of the misconduct that is alleged. And that became the law of the land for for a while, it was never formally withdrawn, but it never really took off. You know, you did see a, a little, you know, mini wave of admissions cases, usually where the conduct was particularly egregious, um, but it, it didn't become something that happened as a matter of course. Instead, in practice, it became kind of a bargaining chip, I think, for defendants and defense counsel. And then it slowly kind of drifted away. 
I think what happened after Director Graywall made his speech last week was people went, oh my gosh, we're going to have admissions all the time now after that policy effectively disappeared. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my take has been, look, it, the policy didn't disappear. You know, there there have been cases this year and last year when the SEC required defendants to admit misconduct. It's usually against individuals and not big organizations, and it's usually where the conduct is pretty obviously bad. But it's not like they don't do it. Um, You know, the other thing is he sort of appropriately couched it to say things like, we're going to do it in appropriate circumstances. We're going to do it when we think it's in the public interest, right? He gave all the right caveats. All anybody heard was they're going to require admissions. (laughs) And, And I would just say... Look, I I think that in the vast majority of cases, defendants will still settle on a no admit, no deny basis. Uh, I I think this is about setting the tone. I think this is about saying where conduct is particularly egregious, as I've said, we might require admissions. And I actually think that that dovetails nicely with some of the comments uh, Director Graywell made during this speech and elsewhere about the nature of SEC enforcement penalties, basically to say... If the conduct is really bad, we're going to want a higher penalty. And I think this this goes right in line with that, right? If the conduct is really bad, we're going to want a higher penalty. That might include an admission. I think that's right in line with some of the comments we heard from Commissioner Crenshaw earlier in the year about how the SEC should rethink their penalties policy. And so for me, I just sort of see this as an extension, a logical extension of a sort of thread that we've seen unravel over the last six or eight months. Uh but still, very, very interesting. I, I don't know how that struck you, Chris. It, it, you weren't exactly jumping out of your seat at the time, but now that you've had a chance to reflect on it. Yeah, I, I see it as an extension, like you said. Not a sea change, but just kind of a focus in the markets or maybe in the enforcement circles generally that has come about kind of slowly since the 2008 financial crisis, right? You'll hear on on media talk shows and everything else, no one ever went to jail for for things that happened back in 2008 and 2009. And I don't think we can adjudicate whether that's appropriate or not here. But the thought is that individual accountability has become a lightning rod for discussion in enforcement, in, in Department of Justice circles, right? You look back to 2015 when the Yates Memorandum came out and the the, the waves that that made uh, related to acting, uh, you know, the Department of Justice look, seeking out individual accountability in the cases it brings. This, again, to, to your point, is not a different regulation or a new posture technically, But to your point, it is bringing out that idea again at the head, at the start of Director Grewal's position leading the Division of Enforcement. Yeah, I I agree completely. You know, it's interesting. Look, to the to the nobody ever goes to jail point. I mean, first and foremost, the SEC doesn't have criminal jurisdiction. Yes, yep. So the, the, right, the SEC is never sending yeah, anyone to jail. Side. <laughs> right. But with respect to criminal prosecutions that might arise from the, the same alleged misconduct, I will say there have been uh, some speeches lately coming out of the DOJ that pick up on the same thread where they're saying, look, we are focusing on individual accountability. Um, we, we may still agree to things like deferred or non-prosecution agreements. Uh, but if you're lucky enough to get one of those, you had better abide by it. So there, there is interesting parallels in tone coming out of both the civil mm-hmm. and the criminal regulators when it comes to, you know, the kind of issues that, that you and I talk That's about right. on this podcast. 
right, Chris, that, that was big thing number one was uh, Director Graywall and the potential shift in admissions policy. Tell us about the second big thing we should focus on. Four words, Kurt. High quality financial information. The accounting panel, I, I went back and counted more than 40 instances of that specific phrase coming out from Paul Muntner, the chief accountant, and his staff in speaking to the SEC Speaks group at, in the accounting presentation. You know, I look at that and see a couple of underpinnings there to high quality financial information. Companies need to be able to produce appropriate financial information under generally accepted accounting principles and those gatekeepers you mentioned earlier, auditors, uh, mm -hmm. need to assure the markets that that information is valid. And one of the things that came up a, a couple times in the accounting panel is that phrase, auditor independence. For those of you, I'll say you knowing me, for those of you not well-versed <laughs> in the modern history of less than independent auditors, I'll give you a few quick notes. Uh, auditors serve in the interest of the public, of the profession, and of their clients to assure that the financial statements of a publicly traded entity are not misstated in any material respect. An important part of that assurance is the independence and objectivity of the auditor. If the auditor is not independent or objective or perceived to lack independence or objectivity, the value of that assurance to the market decreases and the purpose of auditors generally just comes into question. So the accounting scandals back in the early 2000s paint a dangerous example of what can happen when auditors lose that edge. They allow clients to steer audits into areas of relative compliance and away from areas of relative subjectivity. Anecdotes of audit teams tipping off clients when and where surprise audits would occur on premises. Audit partners becoming ensconced in senior management of the company's personal social circles. Or audit firms becoming overly dependent on fees related to non-audit or consulting services to those audit clients all show what might happen when audit independence and objectivity is found wanting. The Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002 and much of the revamp of the accounting standards that happened right after that look to deal exactly with those issues. A quick crude example, uh, imagine a moment back in 1999, an accounting firm has a long-standing audit client for which annual audit fees total a million dollars. Apart from the audit relationship in 1999, that accounting firm may have more than $10 million in consulting fees for the same client with a focus on technology implementations, due diligence and mergers and acquisitions activity, or other consulting services. That audit partner may have been under significant pressure, whether from the client or from his own firm, to ensure the client was kept happy with their audit because that $10 million in fees was discretionary and the client could take that business down the road to the next firm should they find the audit team unsatisfactory. So that type of issue is what SOX and the Generally Accepted Auditing Standards, or GAS, as it was revised in the 2000s, sought to eliminate. The idea that they'd have to make decisions during a supposedly objective and independent audit to satisfy the business decisions of the firm based on their client relationships. The lines have been drawn in the 20 years since, and rules and regulations on auditor independence are some of the most significant internal processes and procedures at large audit firms. All right. Let's get to the conference. At SEC Speaks, yes, <laughs> yes Kurt, I'm glad you enjoyed your, your brief education <laughs> no, that's in auditor independence. And, you know, believe it or not, I, I, I know these rules because I've represented some, <laughs> right. some auditors in these sticky situations. But yeah, so, so what do they have to say at Speaks? Uh, Paul Muntner, the SEC's chief accountant, and Matt Jakes, the chief accountant for the enforcement division, noted that the centralization and growth of audit firms across the size spectrum in recent years are in the SEC's sites regarding independence. Large accounting firms continually look to grow and find new ways to serve their clients, and some of those ways may be eroding the perception of independence and objectivity with their audit clients. 
Chief Accountant Muttner said, quote, audit firms have entered into a greater number and more complex both business and service relationships with issuers. As the number and complexity of those arrangements increase, it creates increased risk to the auditor's ability to serve existing audit clients with objectivity and impartiality. Mr. Muttner goes on to outline scenarios in which non-audit issuers go public and the audit firms that once served only in a consulting capacity are now faced with those potential independence issues in performing the company's newly required audit. He didn't use the word SPAC there, Kurt, but that's really kind of a focus of that statement. <laughs> You've got this, this tough nut to crack in terms of how to get a, a SPAC company uh, put together in a good spot. And then after the, the de-SPAC uh, transaction, you've got a publicly traded company that requires an audit. So uh, I think that he was leaning into some of those ideas. Matt Jakes, from his enforcement perspective, made the somewhat forceful remark that, quote, I have less than zero sympathy for independence violations that <laughs> resulted from firms having prioritized growing consulting practice, growing non-audit services, prioritizing those over the integrity of its independence to its issuer audit clients, end quote. He goes on to repeat a standard line in his speeches of late stating, quote, accounting and auditing is no place for creative thinking, especially related to independence, end quote. So you can imagine the focus of these firms growing their revenue as a road to SEC enforcement actions, albeit paved with good intentions. Kurt, obviously, I'm a little bit biased here as a practicing accountant working with audit firms, but I'm interested in what your unbiased take would be. So how do you see auditor independence in today's markets? Look, I think auditor independence is always an important issue for for the commission uh, because you know, public companies' financial reports and disclosures are critical sources of information for in investors. I mean, more than one SEC commissioner has said something like, it's the backbone of our capital yeah. markets, right? And that that's where the auditors come in. I mean, they are important gatekeepers. Um, so it may be the case that the staff is actually going to step up their oversight in this in this space. I mean, they've certainly put down a marker, right, to say we're looking at it. Uh, I sort of see the, you know, Munter's comments as an extension of things that uh, Chair Gensler has been saying for a little while now about how he wants to look critically at changes in how our capital markets function, uh, how market participants interact with one another. And I think the comments are sort of at, at the intersection of two trends. One is sort of the the growth or the change of the audit and accounting firm world that you you talked about. That you know this sort of growth into consulting services and some other sort of ancillary services that maybe aren't you know strictly the traditional kind of auditor accounting services that we would think about, right? And just a period of unprecedented uh, M and A activity. Mm -hmm. You know the explosion in in SPAC mergers or de SPAC transactions, right? All of of those things have created some legitimately tricky situations for audit firms. And the staff is obviously aware that this is going on. I mean, to your point about enforcement, I'm not sure what this is going to mean in the near term. Uh, it could mean enforcement. Um, you know, I'm not aware of any enforcement action to date where a firm was charged with violation of auditor independence rules because it, it sort of continued acting in a consulting capacity after a merger mm -hmm. where you know they were you know doing a, a traditional audit services for for the other, for the other company so i don't know i i really don't know i mean it, it's interesting too that the sec seems to be taking this on of course that's within their uh within their mandate within their their jurisdiction to do but it, it feels like maybe something they ought to be saying to the pcaob like hey we want you guys to take a closer look at this i can tell you when i've been in these cases in the past they typically start 
start with the PCAOB. Sometimes they end there. Sometimes they go up to the SEC. But like, I don't hear any mention of that here. So here's my hot take. Hot take. We, we, yeah, we need some kind of air horn. <laughs> uh, it. <laughs> it feels like the SEC is actually trying to grab back from some of the SROs hmm. authority to uh, to regulate or enforce some of these rules. I mean, we certainly see it with respect to some of some of the things in the broker dealer space. We're going to talk a little bit about some of that, but you know, things like regulation, best interest. There's another air horn, and but but I think we see it here too a little bit, yeah. right? Because I don't know, maybe you disagree with me, Chris, but this feels like principally a PCAOB issue. Yeah, I mean, I go back to our episode where we got to speak with Wes Bricker, the former uh, chief accountant for the SEC, and he was very focused mm-hmm. on the accounting profession's role as a trusted advisor or a trusted participant in the industry. And a lot of financial services centralize around trust. And so the fact that there's only so many large firms that can service these mid to large size companies from an audit or consulting perspective, the value of that trust right, is, is evident in, in the services they perform. But the more centralized it becomes, that's where we start to see these independence issues. So I don't know which way the wind is blowing at the commission in terms of what they're looking for. The cases that are brought either at the SEC or the PCAOB level seem to be relatively clear cut when they're announced uh, in terms of independence violations. So we'll have to keep watching and see. Uh, you know, Auditor independence is one of those issues that comes up at a regular clip, right? It's kind of the, uh, you know, a focus for the SEC, regardless of the the leaning of the commissioners or, or anything like that. So uh, I'm hopeful yep. to see where it goes and, and, and be able to talk more, Kurt, about auditor independence <laughs> as we go forward. <laughs> I remember when we were sitting together, um, you talked a bit, uh, I forget if you pounded the table or slapped your hands together and said, I've been talking about this stuff for months. And I think that's our that's our third big take, Kurt, from from the SEC Speaks conference. Yeah, third big take. I, I think actually I said I've been talking about this for years. Oh, sorry, uh, which, I underplayed it. <laughs> which is true. <laughs> uh, so this is uh, the big take number three is that I think it came through during the conference multiple times that the SEC is actually focusing or casting a critical eye on what I would call uh, digital advice. I think that Chair Gensler has, um, I don't know if he's coined the phrase, but he's repeated it enough times now that I'll give it to him, uh, digital engagement practices uh, or DEPs. There were two big speeches at Speaks that really got at this issue. One was from Chair Gensler. He made a big point about it in his opening remarks. He was the first speaker at SEC Speaks, and he decided to talk an awful lot about digital engagement practices. And and what I mean by that is the way that uh, broker-dealers or online investing platforms engage with their customers, whether that's through an application, whether that's through something that you log on to through your Internet Explorer or your Chrome browser. Um, but the, the way that retail investors interact with their broker-dealer or their investment advisor in an online space. And essentially what, what Gensler was saying is that, look, the, the world is changing. There are new platforms. There are new ways that, uh, that firms are delivering services. And we need to think about what that means. We need to think about how we as a regulator are looking at the changes in the industry and whether there's anything for us to do there. Uh, the, the, for me, um, there were a couple quotes from his speech that I'll read to you here because I think they get, they get at the point. One was kind of up top and then we'll jump down to the bottom. But uh, Chair Gensler said, Today, digital platforms, including finance platforms, have new capabilities to tailor products to individual investors using DEPs. These modern features go beyond game-like 
elements, or what is sometimes called gamification, they encompass the underlying predictive analytics, as well as a variety of differential marketing practices, pricing, and behavioral prompts. Uh, so there, he's really just getting at how how the market is changing, how, you know, like there's an app for that, right? That hasn't always been the case. You used to actually have to go into an office. And Chris, you and I were talking about this recently yeah. about how should we think about this in the context of the old school kind of bricks and mortar, mm -hmm. you know, like broker dealer or investment advisor. What, what does this stuff look like? What's, what's a nudge if you're sitting across the desk from someone? The, the quote later in his speech, which is closer to the conclusion, is the following. I believe we live in a transformative time where artificial intelligence and predictive data analytics are changing many aspects of our economy. We may be at the early stages of these developments in finance, but we're already seeing changes in multiple areas, from trading to asset management to risk management and beyond. I believe that these technologies present the opportunity to expand access and lead to better risk management. The predictive data analytics also raise a number of important challenges, conflicts of interest, bias, and systemic risk. So I think the thrust of that is that Chair Gensler is really looking hard at how these new services, applications, platforms function. He wants to know, are there conflicts in terms of you know, recommendations that they make to the extent that they make recommendations. And that's a loaded question in and of itself or, or the products that are available on the platform. They want to know if there are any biases towards recommendations because of the way that the predictive an data analytics work, uh, or, or if there is risk because sort of when you're, when you're turning over some kind of advisory function to, uh, to AI, I mean, there could be risks there, right? It may, it may be better than a human could ever do it. But I think what, what Gensler is saying is like, we need to think about this. We need to figure out how these things work and whether there's space for the SEC to do anything in here. And that, I think, is where uh, the investor advocate Rick Fleming comes in, right? So on day two, sort of dovetailing nicely with Chair Gensler's remarks, uh, Rick Fleming comes in and he is sort of saying, look... What the chair is saying is absolutely right. And my concern is that there's there's potential for harm to retail investors. Uh, so I'm going to read you a little bit of the investor advocate speech as well. He says, one significant event since I last spoke here was the adoption of regulation best interest or Reg BI in June of 2019. As I said at the time, Reg BI seemed to be a step in the right direction because it included several improvements over the suitability standard for broker-dealers. However, the rapid evolution of the broker-dealer business model now leaves me wondering whether Reg BI was worth the effort at all. Although well-intentioned, recent events expose what may be a significant flaw in Reg BI. This brings us to another major development since 2019, that is the so-called gamification of retail stock trading. This is not a precise term, but it refers generally to the use of technological tools to make trading easier and more exciting. Broker-dealers, as well as some investment advisors, now utilize a variety of digital engagement practices, or DEPs, to connect with a broader array of retail investors particularly younger investors who grew up with similar design features in other online apps and games on their devices. 
I mean, it's just remarkable yeah. how, how the investor advocate and Chair Gensler seem to be singing from the same sheet of music mm-hmm. here, Chris. But anyway, let, let me tell you how the investor advocate concludes. So I'm going to jump down in his speech a little bit because I think it's important as well. He says, it seems that most, if not all, of the online discount brokers are influencing investor behavior with digital engagement practices, which further blurs the line between providing investment advice and traditional brokerage service. At some point, if the commission fails to brighten the distinction between advisors and brokers, it will make little sense to regulate the two with such distinct regulatory models. And that, frankly, is the thing that I've been saying for years, is because of how these platforms or applications have evolved, it feels like the line between brokerage services and investment advisory services, in some cases... Is unclear. It it has been blurred. I mean, I think he uses the absolute right mm-hmm. word there. And so, what what the SEC has to contend with going forward is, you know, no longer living in a world where the role of a broker is really clear. Right? I always describe the broker as the pharmacist, yeah. who is sort of you go into the store. You maybe know what you want. You buy it off the shelf. They don't really owe you a duty. If I go talk to the pharmacist and ask for some help, then maybe that duty, you know, ratchets up a little bit. But it's never as high as the duty of care that your PCP owes you. And that's the investment advisor. They're helping you with everything. In fact, they're telling you what you ought to Mm -hmm. do. Here's what you ought to eat. How much exercise, sleep, whatever. Um, But when you get into this online space, particularly where you've got nudges and gamification and prompts and all, you know, all that stuff, the sort of user experience that they're baking into the platforms now, it just gets a little blurry. And I, I think what I'm hearing from the commission is that they are committed to trying to figure this out. And, and what exactly should the rules be? When should the commission step in? So anyway, that, that's what I'm here. Look, I, I could talk about this, as you know, probably for another hour. So I'm going to just stop. <laughs> Chris, what, what do you think? Am I, am, I like, am I hearing this correctly or am I just excited? I think both. And that's okay. Those aren't mutually exclusive. <laughs> uh, you know, to me, it really comes down to that liability. And that's obviously where a lot of our work overlaps. And I think you described it well in terms of where these conversations are happening. And again, even that conversations are happening is a data point towards how this should go. It's yeah. when that element is removed. Uh, you know, it's hard to blame the algorithm or or have the algorithm, um, you know, admit or deny their their charges like we just talked about from a uh, an enforcement perspective. And I think that's where things are going. And and we've joked about this on previous podcast episodes about the length of time between when regulations of a similar nature are updated. You know, we talked about the advertising rules and and basically it was something like four decades since the last time the advertising rules were updated. And, you know, the internet didn't exist. And I always laugh when they talk about who was president the last time this was updated or what the top (laughs) song in the country was. Uh, Here, um, you know, it's not the length of time that's passing. It's the difference in the types of services that are enabled by technology and how prevalent they're becoming. I mean, we talked a lot about meme stocks in 2021. That's something that wasn't possible for all of the reasons that technology, you know, came about this year and, and the social uh, structure that made things like that happen. And and when that advice starts to bleed over into professional advice and not just, you know, a Reddit uh, forum, it becomes that that fiduciary responsibility or that duty uh, of those individuals designated to have that duty to make that happen. So I don't know how to play catch up on this, Kurt. 
I feel like that's, uh, you know, excited and, and well hearing folks like you uh, when it comes to these comments. But um, it's it's something that I think is happening across a lot of things, not only in in finance, but in society, you know, writ large in how to deal with technology moving faster than the pace of regulation. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's it's been an emerging issue for a long time. I mean, I remember uh, Commissioner Jackson calling this out before he left the commission in uh, February 2020, basically saying, we don't have the resources or the headcount or maybe the expertise mm-hmm. to keep up with the pace of innovation in the financial services industry, You know, thinking about fintech, thinking about online broker dealers and things like that. And so it's going to be interesting to see how the SEC adapts. I will say all of these topics that we're talking about really, I think, reflect a a commitment by Chair Gensler and the staff up and down the commission to address some of these emerging issues, to to see sort of the evolution in how the markets function in how services are provided and by whom. I mean, it's sort of the same story with the auditor independence, yeah. right? In some respects, that's a reaction to changes within you know the audit and accounting industry, as well as just increases in things like de-SPAC mm-hmm. transactions, right? Everything we're talking about here with digital engagement practices is a response to innovation in the financial services industry. And if there is maybe one thing changing, one new thing that everybody wants to talk about, that would probably be big thing number four. Big thing number four, Kurt. Uh, We'll play a little bit of hide the ball here because I want to talk a little bit about how much this podcast (laughs) has changed my life. And it's really been how you and I focus on the speeches given by the commissioners. You know, we've been lucky to have many of them both while sitting and afterwards on the program. And I think I've learned a lot in following how they structure arguments about complex issues and also reading them in tandem with what other commissioners might be saying at the same time. You know, I, I always admire the respect and the professionalism they have, even when you can read between the lines for that vigorous disagreement that they display between each other. So one of those situations came to head with our big takeaway number four at SEC Speaks, and that is our favorite topic, crypto. Uh, October presented two opportunities for SEC commissioners to voice their thoughts. Uh, Commissioner Hester Peirce, as we all know, affectionately as the crypto mom for her support of innovation in the space, (laughs) provided remarks to the Texas Blockchain Summit in Austin, Texas on October 8th. And then Commissioner Caroline Crenshaw, who's been viewed by some as more supportive of regulations over crypto than some of her fellow commissioners, gave a keynote at the SEC Speaks conference related to digital assets. First, Kurt not to disappoint you, but right off the top, Commissioner Purse did not use any of the suggested speech titles we gave her based on our our old man pop culture references. So I think we whiffed on that one. And I, I'm just I'm hugely disappointed. Um, I will DM her <laughs> and ask what happened. Uh, that said, still not a bad title. Lawless, Was it Lawless in Austin, in Austin that's right. right? Like, yeah. So yeah. A re- a, that's a reference <laughs> so both bad, to uh, uh, recent comments by Chair Gensler, as well as obviously the location. So Chair Gensler's quote in today's crypto market has gotten a lot of press. Uh, he said the market is like the, quote, Wild West. And Commissioner Peirce has done some heavy lifting in her speech in Austin to change the paradigm of the Wild West to that of the land of opportunity that was afforded to early settlers that headed across the country. <laughs> so hopefully that'll help explain some of the metaphoric language I'll quote here as we go forward. She remarks that the perception of a Wild West was ill-placed and many examples of self-regulation existed. For instance, quote, Texas cattlemen, whose ranches were delineated by clear property lines, were able to create order on their ranches. One ranch's code prohibited cowboys from gambling, 
carrying six shooters, keeping private horses, running game with ranch horses, drinking, and stealing cattle from other ranchers. With that, she goes on to say, quote, The crypto frontier, like the Wild West, appears pretty wild at first glance, home to lots of code slingers and speculators and some hucksters, too. This new West also has its inter- and intra-protocol <laughs> fights, friendships forged through shared difficulties and successes, colorful personalities, passions, dreams, hardships, spectacular failures, and remarkable victories. But as in the West of the past, there is order and discipline in all of that rough and tumble. Because crypto is built on code, the code itself serves as a governor of conduct. But crypto is built on people too. And these people hold each other accountable, not only through unbridled public discourse, but through using or not using a protocol, end quote. The rest of her remarks take on a more almost confrontational approach to the question of crypto regulation, asking more so, why should we be regulating instead of why shouldn't we be? Now, I love the Wild West. I love kind of that period in our American history. So she really pulled me in with some of those references. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Commissioner Crenshaw, uh, you know, almost on the other side or, or taking a different tact, remarked at SEC Speaks and reflected her support of the history of the current regulatory landscape. She says, quote, I have a message I want digital asset market participants to hear. To move these markets forward, there must be a meaningful exchange of ideas between innovators and regulators. And while we share common goals, we may prioritize issues differently, and our initial proposed solutions might reflect those distinctions. And that's okay. Even good. Different viewpoints coupled with constructive dialogue will yield better results in the long run. End quote. Contrary to some arguments for less regulation, Commissioner Crenshaw says that, quote, I also worry that relaxing regulatory requirements and markets prone to investor protection failures, limited investor redress options because of pseudo-anonymity and disintermediation and market manipulation, cannot sustain investor confidence or yield lasting broad adoption. To sustain growth, markets need more accountability and a consistent set of rules that apply to all. End quote. She then posits that during the ICO craze of 2017 and 2018, a safe harbor that has been suggested by other commissioners on those digital asset companies would have been even more ruinous than the hundreds of millions of dollars suffered in losses by excited and uninformed investors during that period. Regarding the hotly debated ambiguity of digital asset regulation, including even the definitional aspects of what a digital asset is, Commissioner Crenshaw puts the burden on in-house counsel, saying, quote, Analyzing regulatory compliance has always been, first and foremost, the responsibility of the enterprise and of their counsel. End quote. Okay, Kurt, so stop, stop me before I get into references to Spaghetti Westerns or I do a discussion of a recent smash hit video game called Red Dead Redemption. What do you think of the metaphors and analysis of the commissioners here? And where do you think the digital asset regulation is headed? Out West or staying right here in D.C.? Oh, man. F I final was not answer. Prepared final for that answer. Question. <laughs> uh, look, I mean, my my guess is that we are heading towards some kind of, uh, probably some kind of rulemaking. Maybe some uh, guidance in the meantime. It's interesting how they take sort of philosophically different approaches to this because I think, you know, Commissioner Purse would say either. We, we need to stay out of this space to allow for innovation or we need clear guidance. We need, you know, clear rules about, you know, what is a security? You know, wh what are the mm -hmm. registration requirements for, for firms? Um, 
for potential ICOs, right? Like, let's understand the shape of the thing. Uh, Commissioner Crenshaw, on the other hand, I think would say, look, we have a a long-standing rule that has been used effectively and interpreted many times to apply to questions like what is a security? And we don't necessarily need to upset that, right? This is just sort of a, a new version of of an old thing, potentially. It's interesting to see how they kind of weave these arguments Mm -hmm. past one another. And it'll be fascinating to see what comes out of it. I mean, my my hope, again, I'm not going to answer your question about what's going on. I just want to be able to tell you that you were wrong, you know, five or six episodes down the road, Kurt. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, my my hope is that the SEC will will give some guidance, right? But, But I don't know... I don't know that they're inclined to do so, frankly. I mean, because one of the other things that, we, that we've heard an awful lot coming out of the SEC, including at SEC Speaks, was we've given a lot of guidance, right? We, we, for one thing, we have an yeah. 80-year-old test that's, that's still good today. And we had the Dow report a couple of years ago. And we have, I forget the number, it's, a, it's actually kind of a shocking number of enforcement actions that can kind of like show you where we think people yeah. have gone outside the bounds. Um, I think a lot of people would say that's not the way to, mm-hmm. to give guidance, right? I mean, and, and all of a sudden you start getting screams of regulation by enforcement. So- what I would hope is that we will actually get some guidance. And what I'm interested to see is how, you know, commissioners, person, Crenshaw sort of work together in the background to to kind of create that guidance. Because what's great is that we now have yes. two commissioners talking about this in a very public way. Right. For a long time, it was mostly mm-hmm. Commissioner Purse. And she was sort of taking the mantle of talking about ESG. And cryptocurrencies. I think that, you know, Commissioner Lee has kind of been set up um, on the ESG side as almost sort of like the the foil mm-hmm. for Commissioner Purse. Uh, and, and maybe now Commissioner Crenshaw is going to take more of an outspoken role with respect to cryptocurrencies. And so it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, I mean, reading those speeches side by side, you can read disagreement top to bottom. Uh, between the way that Commissioner Crenshaw and Commissioner Purse are approaching it. But the thing that I talked about at the beginning and learning a lot more about the commissioners and the way that they they craft their arguments, both of them agree that dialogue is a good thing, right? And I think that that's, that's a message I'm taking away from this and unfortunately doesn't solve anything, but it does help kind of bring these issues to light like you talked about and having these addressed by the commissioners openly and, and sharing both the strengths and weaknesses of where their points are, I think is only going to get us to a better place, hopefully soon, uh, if not in the medium term. Yep, I agree with you completely. Um, and and look, they are listening to each other. I will say, as an aside, um, there were a couple little remarks, I think. I haven't gone back and compared uh, you know, the on-demand content to the actual speech that was released online, but I'm pretty sure Commissioner Crenshaw added a couple sentences in the beginning of her remarks, basically acknowledging that Commissioner Purse had given mm-hmm. her speech earlier in the day. Um, she said something like, in preparing for my remarks, I looked at a bunch of you know, media coverage and other things, including some very recent speeches, right? So let's hope they're listening to each other. Let's hope they're talking about it because I think that's the way forward if what we want is to get some clarity in the space. Well, Kurt, I think we've done our best to give a succinct 
coverage of two full, robust days with the commission. Maybe not the who's who, but everybody that was there. Always a great event. And, and like you said, PLI ran it without a hitch uh, for those two days. Absolutely. Uh, seriously, if you missed it, check it out. On demand, online, pli.edu. You know where to go. For those consumers like Kurt and I who maybe have favorite panels and others not, uh, they're delineated between the actual topics. So don't feel like you got to sit and fast forward through six and a half hours before you get to accounting. It's right there waiting for you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at Ekimov CPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.